Well, good morning again. When I was a young boy, our family went for a hike with some family friends. And I think it was just me and my parents and then uh, some friends of my, my parents. And we were at a state park in southwestern Ohio called Houston Woods. I was young, um, so I don't remember all the details with perfect clarity, but I do remember the main details, and I remember especially how I felt. It was a pretty day, probably in the summertime. We were hiking along a trail through the woods that uh, bordered uh, a lake there, Acton Lake. And it was an in and an out trail, which means that as far as you hike in, that's as far as you have to, to hike out. Um, it was on our way back to the parking lot that I, like uh, every kid at some point, decided I want to beat everyone back to the car. I'm gonna turn it into a competition. And so the group of us came to a, a fork in the trail, and I had the brilliant idea that I should take the trail on the left, and they should take the trail on the right, and I, we would see who gets back there first. My parents were in conversation with their friends, and so they heard me yell to them. I know they heard me. I'm going this way. I'll see you at the car. They must have not believed me, and they just kept walking down that trail. And I was serious. I, I took the trail to the left. Um, I walked on my own through the woods, and I just thought for sure that at some point I'm going to see the parking lot, I'm going to see the car, and no one will be there. I'm definitely going to be there first. But the parking lot never came. Um, pretty soon, my playfulness became unease. And as I began, uh, as, I, as I kept walking, I began to realize that I had made a big mistake. Um, but if I were older, I, I would have known that the best thing to do is to just turn around, go back, and then you know, follow my parents down that other trail. But I wasn't old enough to, to be wise enough. And so I thought that the best thing to do is just to double down and keep going. Eventually, you'll get to the parking lot. Soon, I saw a clearing in the trees ahead, and I thought I had found it, but it wasn't. It was a road. And so I, the trail just stopped at the road, and I'm there on the standing on the road wondering where in the world I am. And I knew at that moment I really messed up. I felt, and I still, it just the feeling rises in me at uh, this moment, just terror, just absolute terror. I had no idea where I was. I had no idea where my parents were. I had no idea if they noticed I wasn't with them. I worried maybe they hadn't. I had no idea how to find them, how to find them. I was alone. I was powerless. And I was separated from the people who loved me best, and certainly who I loved the most. But I know, I know that God was with me in his sovereignty. As I stood there next to the road, no doubt uh, looking like a fool with tears <laughs> running down my face, a car approached on the road. And if you're a parent, uh, you probably can imagine how kind of terrifying this is. A car approached and stopped. And inside the car was a family from church. And they were as confused as I was for them, them driving up and them wondering why on earth I'm standing on the side of the road. They understood that I had been separated from my parents and that I needed to find them. And so they took me to the parking lot where the nearest trailhead was. And there was my mother next to the car. And I think my dad was somewhere in the trail looking for me and not finding me. And I don't remember what they said, but I, re I remember the feeling that I got. And the feeling I got was, what were you thinking? And yet it was also, we are so glad you're back. <laughs> so glad you're back. When I think about a time in my life when I was separated from love, that, that was it. That's it. And I wonder if you were to think about that same question, what might come to your mind? What does it feel like to be separated? It's as we consider what it feels like to be separated 
that I want us to take a look at the first verse of our passage this morning. We're continuing on in our series on the book of Romans. Today we are in Romans chapter 8, finishing out that chapter with verses 35 to 39. Normally I'll read through the entire text all at once, but we're going to go verse by verse through this today. It's a good chance to open your Bibles and follow along. We will start with verse 35 and again go to verse 39. But just that first verse here. Paul continues his encouragement to the Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Why is Paul writing this to the Romans? What hardships do you think might they have been facing that would cause him to talk about such graphic things as these? This was the first century, long time ago. Despite being the inhabitants of the capital city of the Roman Empire, they're in Rome, the people that Paul's writing to are just experiencing lots of life-threatening forces. That was just life in the first century. Guess what the average life expectancy for people living in the Roman Empire was at that time? 35. And that's a, and that's a high, on the high end. If you live past 35, good on you. You got lucky. In addition to that, these people that Paul's writing to were, were facing unique hardships because they were Christians. As Christianity took root throughout the Mediterranean, it was persecuted first from radical Judaism, Jews who wanted nothing to do with this new sect and the false Messiah that they worshipped. These were people like Paul had been when he was called Saul, killing Christians even. But over time, Christianity began to be persecuted by the Roman Empire itself, especially beginning with Nero very famously, in the 60s AD. So, Paul's questioning to the Roman Christians rings out with resounding relevance. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? We are Christians, but we're facing things that threaten us. Will the God who saved us in Jesus continue to keep us safe? Will he stay close at hand? Almost every evil that we as human beings can face I think, can be understood from the perspective of separation. Let's just take, for instance, the things that Paul mentions here in this verse. Tribulation, that's a separation from tranquility. Distress is a separation from delight. Persecution is separation from peace. Famine is a separation from food. I'm going to keep the alliteration going. Nakedness is a separation from not looking stupid. Uh, danger is a separation from doing things without fear. And sword is a separation from some part of your body that got cut off by it. Now, I'm stretching the alliteration there, but I think the principle holds. Separation from a good thing is an evil. It is evil. Let's consider some other things that might happen to us in our lives. Being betrayed. That's a separation from trust. Being thirsty is a separation from water. Being sick is a separation from our health. Being divorced is a separation from covenant love. Being imprisoned is separation from freedom. Being unemployed is a separation from provision. Being a Phoenix Suns fan is a separation from ever winning the NBA Finals. <laughs> we could go on and on and on to the Cardinals, to the Diamondbacks. No. What John Chrysostom, the, the fourth century bishop of Constantinople, says about this passage is this. He says, each word Paul lists contains thousands 
of lines of temptation. Tribulation, for instance, includes prisons and bonds, calumnies and banishments and all other such hardships. A single word, Paul says, covers oceans of dangers and reveals to us all the evils which people encounter in this life. It's an expansive list that Paul's giving, in other words. Evidently, the Roman Christians were were well acquainted with these kinds of things. And in fact, Paul himself was even more acquainted. Throughout um, his epistles, especially, I think, in 2 Corinthians, he often names the various hardships that he and the other apostles have been exposed to because of Jesus. The case in point, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, As servants of God, the apostles and ministers of the gospel, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet we are true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. I think Paul's question, who shall separate us from the love of God, is one he asked himself quite often. He's asking it of himself before he ever asked it to anyone else. And so it's with this personal experience of suffering for Jesus that Paul pens the next verse in which he quotes from Psalm 44. Verse 36 says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I think first and foremost, Paul is in fact describing the experience uh, that he faced and also that other apostles face. That's what he's bringing to mind. And in graphic terms, he's comparing their prospects in life to that of a butcher shop. That's what we get. We get to be sheep led to the slaughter. But what Paul wants the Romans to know is that he himself was not speaking about hardships that that he wasn't facing. He was facing the same things, which, which makes what Paul says in the next verse all the more powerful because those who have suffered and still remain faithful have much more credibility, don't they? You must really believe it. At the same time, Paul is also making reference to the calling of all Christians. We're all in some sort of way. Sheep led to the slaughter. Why is that? Well, we have as our Messiah, one who is called the Lamb of God. One who was a sheep led to the slaughter for our sakes. The Christian life is one of being exposed to being slaughtered, evidently. Jesus himself warned his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they're going to also persecute you. So Paul and the Romans are facing hardship, the same kinds of hardship which God incarnate was exposed to in his earthly life. And in the face of these things, the question is, can any of these things separate us from the love of God? Can the loss of any good thing, the things that we want, Can it cause us to lose the good God? We have a resounding answer in verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. 
That's really over-the-top language, more than conquerors. It's kind of funny, actually. The Greek word is hupernikao. The first part of that word is where we get our word hyper, hooper. Hupernikao essentially means to be hyper-victorious. It's a verb. To be a super champion. That's so over-the-top. Paul is saying that in the midst of being slaughtered, mostly figuratively, but sometimes literally, we are hyper-victorious. How can that be? Perhaps you've heard of St. Cyprian. Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage in North Africa from 249 to 258 AD. That's just 200 years after Paul wrote this letter to the Romans around 58 AD. Persecution was a significant part of life in the Roman Empire at that time, just as it has been at many times in the 200 years prior. In 258, Cyprian found out just how bad it was. He was executed for his faith. The Roman Emperor Valerian told him he needed to recant and then sacrifice to the Roman gods, and, and Cyprian refused, and he was killed. How is it that Cyprian was more than a conqueror? How does that work? For all intents and purposes, he was pretty conquered, right? I think it just depends on what Cyprian wanted for his life. If the thing Cyprian was after was to live a long life of health and prosperity, then I think he lost that battle. If the thing Cyprian was after was to make Carthage the fastest growing and largest diocese in all the Mediterranean, perhaps that ambition was cut short. If the thing that Cyprian was after was to live up to the motto of the Gila River billboards, you do you, then he definitely lost that bet. But if the thing that Cyprian wanted more than anything in this life was to know God and to be known by him, what could possibly take that away from him? Listen to how Cyprian himself reflects on this passage. He says, none of these things can separate believers from God. Nothing can snatch away those clinging to Christ's body and blood. This persecution is for the examination and evaluation of our heart. God always wants us to be tried and proved as gold, as he has always tried his own. And yet, in his trials, never at any time has his help failed believers. Turns out to be quite prophetic for him. If the thing that we want is God, then when we submit to God's will, no matter what separations it might bring us in our life, then it's our proof of victory that God's love is ever-present. It's the thing we see exemplified in Jesus' own life, in the Paschal mystery, His incarnation, His life, His death, and His resurrection. The apparent defeat at the cross, the separation of God, the Father's face from God the Son, wasn't really defeat. Why not? Because Jesus achieved the very thing He set out to achieve. That was the point. Jesus was victorious over sin on the cross. It wasn't a loss. But to call Jesus just victorious because of the cross would be too tame. Because something followed. The resurrection followed. And because of his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was hyper-victorious. If the grave couldn't hold him, what more could be done to him? And that's the same 
hyper-victorious power that Paul is saying belongs to us, what could possibly separate us from God's love if death cannot do so? It's the best weapon in the enemy's arsenal, and it doesn't work. And so to put the point on the exclamation, Paul brings the gleaming splendor that is Romans chapter 8 to a close with just two verses. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the theological equivalent of saying A to Z and everything in between. In Romans 8.28, Paul had said, all things work together for good. And in this passage, verse 39, he says, nothing will be able to separate us. All things work together for our good. Nothing will be able to separate us. For me, I, I can almost hear the little boy asking questions of his mother at bedtime. Maybe I did these things. The boy says, Mama, will anything ever make you stop loving me? No, son, I will never stop loving you. What if someone takes you away? No, my son, nothing can take away my love for you. What if I'm bad? No, my son, you can never be so bad that I won't love you. What if something bad happens to me? No, my son, there is nothing, nowhere, and never that can stop me from loving you. Okay. I think Paul wants us to imagine ourselves as children of God the Father. Children who have the same need of affirmation that that little boy has. Who are hungry for the same kind of security that he is, who in the face of sadness and fear are yearning to believe that we are the beloved of God. Not just now, but forever. The scripture tells us, you are the beloved. You are the beloved. Believe it. Perhaps one of the greatest threats to God's love operating in our lives in a way that changes us is not some external force or some circumstance that happens to us. Rather, it's our own unwillingness to receive it. I don't deserve it. It can't possibly be true for me. If God loved me, I wouldn't be hurting. And I am, so he must not. It's on this point that the beloved author, Henry Nouwen, writes this in his book, Life of the Beloved. He says, every time you feel hurt or offended or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, self, these feelings, as strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity and held in a safe, everlasting embrace. This is healthy and mature self-talk, and we need it. More of it. Separation from God, which is a feature in all of our lives, is a pretty big character in the story of Scripture. In fact, it takes just three chapters for separation from good to become a part of the human experience. It's at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis that it says, God drove the man out of the garden. The woman, woman was with him. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You are separate 
Adam and Eve's sin was the original separation from God. And it wasn't just spiritual in nature. It was also physical, material. The rest of the pages of Scripture tell the story about the good news of God's loving plan for reunification. You think about a family in this earth that's been devastated and is separated. Reunification is the story of the gospel. When you think salvation, that's what it means. It means reunification with God, your Father. That plan of reunification was going to require the perfect sacrifice of God's Son, incarnate in human flesh, in order that He might unite God and man together in Himself for all time. This is Christianity's gospel. This is the good news. It's the best message in the whole world. Go search for a better one. This passage in Romans chapter 8 underscores the supremacy of God's love over all things. It's a love that's hyper-victorious. It's over the top. It's a love that gives us an inseparable identity as the beloved, no matter what we face in our God-given earthly days. But listen, I, I know you, and I know me. There are all sorts of things that we fear in this life. We're an afraid people. There are all sorts of people or circumstances that might separate us from the good things that we really do want for ourselves. And just like toddlers, I think toddlers may be over there in our nursery right now, it often fills us with separation anxiety. Is the good coming back? What if it doesn't? What then? But let me ask you, is there an economic downturn so extreme that it can impoverish you of God's love? Is there a wall so high that it can keep you away from God's love? Is there a natural disaster so catastrophic that it can level God's love in your life? Is there an army so fearsome that it can annex you away from the love of God? Is there a court so unjust it can sentence you to a life without God's love? Is there a burglar so crafty that he can rob you of the love of God? Is there a cancer so vicious that it can give a terminal diagnosis to God's love in your life? Is there a detour in the woods so alluring that it can lead you away from the love of God your Father? Is there anything else in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? No. No. There was a Scottish pastor in the mid to late 1800s by the name of George Matheson. You might know his story. I, I can't think of a better way to end this today. Around the age of 19, having finished his studies at the University of Edinburgh, he was engaged to be married. But at that same time, he received some tragic news about his health. He was told that he's going blind. He told his fiancée what was happening to him, I'm sure hoping for some empathy. She decided she didn't want to be married to a blind man. And so she broke off the engagement. By the age of 20, Matheson was completely blind. And his nickname was the Blind Pastor. How fun. 
And yet it did not stop him from writing and publishing many works. Among his most famous writings is a hymn he wrote at the age of 40, 20 years later, never, never having been married. He was preparing to attend his sister's wedding ceremony, which is no doubt something that brought to his own mind the heartbreak that had been a feature of his life. Within a matter of minutes, he says five minutes, he had written the words to the song, O love that will not let me go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Beloved, if God's love simply will not let us go, then indeed, what could possibly separate us from it? You tell me.